0: So this evening is uh, the eve of the last presidential debate and the World Series and uh, the Zen Center Hospice Program and other such things. In reflecting tonight on what to speak about and knowing that Franco would be coming and talking about the hospice work, um, I want to tie in the theme which we've been using for a number of weeks this fall, on the cultivation of the heart of mindfulness or awareness. Uh, We talked about listening and attention to desire and the sacred space of of awareness to connect that with uh, death and dying. The text from the Buddha on the practice of mindfulness begins as we've talked about. My friends, there's a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the true path and realize nirvana, the deathless. What is this way? It is the cultivation of the four foundations, the four establishments of awareness or mindfulness. An invitation to the deathless from the Buddha. Following that invitation, the Buddha begins by instructing people to sit and find a quiet place and to begin as a yogi, as a meditator, to become aware of their breath and body, to stabilize attention by connecting their mind that's usually scattered in the world with this physical life of the body, mindfulness of the body. And after presenting meditation and breathing, this sutra takes a curious detour. It doesn't continue from being aware of the breath to then being aware of feelings and thoughts as we usually do in uh, insight meditation retreats. There's a part that's often left out in the instructions for Westerners, but I want to include it tonight. What the Buddha says after you become quiet and connected with your body is begin to contemplate the nature of this body. Do you feel your breath coming in and out and so forth? How does a practitioner remain awakeful in the awareness of this body? My friends, imagine a sack of grain that can be opened at both ends, containing a variety of seeds, brown rice, wild rice, mung beans, kidney beans, sesame, white rice. When someone with good eyesight opens the bag, they will review it like this here, the brown rice, this is wild rice, these are mung beans, sesame seed, kidney beans, and so forth. Just so, the practitioner or meditator brings their attention and passes in review the whole of their body inside and out and notices what is present. What is this body? Fur on the top of the head, we have fur styles, remember I talked about the other night then fur on the body of different kinds, nails, teeth, skin, muscles, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, bowels, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, Tears, grease, saliva, mucus, urine, etc. <laughs> yes. So the practitioner looks at this. In this body is the earth element, the water element, the fire element, or temperature element, the air element. Within this body, then we begin to pay attention to what's here. And then the Buddha goes further and gives what he calls the cemetery meditations, imagining that you're dying and seeing the body lying there and then seeing what happens to it. It gets bloated and turns blue and starts to rot. And if it's out in the forest, animals come to tear at it and various things come out of it. So kind of the practices that we did of the stages of a corpse um, that were part of a traditional monastic practice. And in our monastery, there were skeletons like you'd see in a medical school and different organs from the human body and little jars for you to meditate on. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is why this sounds pretty weird stuff. (laughs) But for those who were here last week, when Fred spoke, he talked about the establishment of awareness of this precious human birth. That we are alive in human form is an extraordinary thing that most of us are educated and have some degree of health, have this possibility of enlightenment, awakening, discovering our true nature to fulfill our human birthright. The greatest of the Theravada Buddhist writers after the Buddha, this very large thousand-page text that he wrote begins with a poem that says, This world is entangled in a tangle, its first line, Who can succeed in untangling this tangle? I guess this is what Ross Perot calls a mess, you know, (laughs) gridlock or whatever. Um, But the gridlock is not just the government, it's the consciousness of greed, hatred, fear, delusion, prejudice that we go around in cycles in, within one lifetime, within a culture, within between nations, and perhaps for many lifetimes. So the teachings of the Buddha begin by starting with mindfulness of death. And the Buddha said, just as all other animal footprints can fit inside the footprint of an elephant, which is the greatest of these, so mindfulness of death is the greatest, the most powerful of all the mindfulness meditations. Everything else fits inside of that. Why is this so? Franco really began to speak about this. Because death gets our attention. There's nothing so good at getting your attention as death when you think it might happen. The trouble with you is you think you have time. So then you get a phone call and your mother has just had a stroke or a heart attack or is dying. And all of a sudden, you pay attention to your mother in a way that you haven't for years and years. And you begin to pay attention to your own life and to what you really care about in a way that you haven't often for a long, long time. A friend of mine found out not long ago that his five-year-old child has leukemia, starting the treatments for cancer. Leukemia, fortunately, is the most most tractable, most treatable of cancers, but I'll tell you, it changed his relationship to this child. In fact, changed the whole family. They came together and their attention and their caring for one another changed dramatically from the moment that death was in the picture. But, of course, death is really always in the picture, isn't it, if we look? Here is a five, uh, no, here is a ten-year-old boy. He said, My teacher asked me to write this. Why are we born, he asked. It was a hard paper for me to write. At first, for a long time, I couldn't think of anything, but now I think I know something to say, spelled N-O. I think God made us each born for a different reason. He doesn't want us to do the same things, so that's why he makes us all so different. If God gives you a great voice, maybe he wants you to sing. Or else if God wants you to be a farmer, he might give you a family that lives on a farm so you get used to the animals and you're not afraid of them. (laughs) And maybe if God makes you grow to be seven feet tall, maybe he wants you to play for the Lakers or the Celtics. (laughs) When my friend Kim died from her cancer, I asked my mom if God was going to make Kim die when she was only six years old. Why did he make her born at all? But my mom said, even though she was only six, she changed people's lives. What that means is like her brother or sister could be the scientist that discovers the cure for cancer and they decided to do that because of Kim. And like me too, I used to wonder why did God pick on me and give me cancer? Maybe it was because. He wanted to be, be, to, me to be a doctor who takes care of kids so that when they say, Dr. Jason, sometimes I get so scared I'm going to die. Or, you don't know how weird it is to be the only bald kid in your whole school. I can say, oh yes I do. When I was a little boy I had cancer too. And look, all my, look at all my hair now. Someday your hair will grow back too. So death gets our attention. And mindfulness of death brings about a profound shift of our identity. It asks us to look into who we are. If we're not our body, we can honor it, yet perhaps we can awaken to that which is timeless, which is deathless. Remember in the Bhagavad Gita, or the Mahabharata, where uh, Arjuna asks Krishna what's the most amazing thing in the world, and Krishna says the most amazing thing in the whole created world is that human beings can see people all around them die and think that it won't happen to them. (laughs) When I was in India, a number of different times, used to go to Benares, and part of the pilgrimage to the city of Benares is to take a boat out on the river, have a boatman row you on the Ganges River, and go down to the burning gods, which are not some horrible place. They're actually a remarkably peaceful place. And there's this big temple with fires that have been lit for 2,000 years. And every 10 or 15 minutes, People come walking down these great stairs from the city above down to the ghats, which means kind of the docks along the Ganges River, carrying a kind of palanquin made of wood or bamboo with a body on it and chanting, Ram Nam Satya He, Ram Nam Satya He, and carrying the body down and dipping it into the Ganges River and then bringing it to one of the funeral pyres that are burning there and praying and continuing to chant. The chant means the only truth is the truth of God, that every 10 or 15 minutes another body is brought down because we're all born, we are going to go somewhere, and so we'll all die. And yet in the face of that, here is a place that stands in reverence of something that's greater than birth and death itself. You know all the literature about people's near-death experiences and so forth that have come out, in Moody's book, Life After Life, Ken Ring's research. I was transformed, said one man who, who died in an accident was, and then came back to life. I was totally transformed from a man who was lost, wandering aimlessly, with no real goal in life other than desire for material things to someone who had a deep motivation, a purpose in life, a definite direction, and an overpowering conviction that there would be a reward at the end of life. My interest in wealth and greed for things, possessions of others, was replaced by a thirst of my heart for spiritual understanding and a passionate desire to see the world conditions improve, to serve others as best as I could. In the face of death if you have the privilege of being with someone when they're dying especially someone who's conscious who's lived something of a spiritual life the questions that are asked are simple ones again did i love well what matters in the end for us anichya what a sankara no. Upakita wa niruchanti desang upasamo suko. Part of the funeral chants. All things in the world, all created things, are impermanent. They have the nature to be born, to exist for a time, and to pass away without exceptions. Those who live in harmony in, with this law find true happiness. How do we care for this precious or changing life? It will change. Divorces happen, you know. All of a sudden, couples that you thought were going to be together forever, sadly, are not. Your childhood is gone. Your children grow and leave you. You can't possess them. Your own body changes in ages. Look at what happened in the Soviet Union. And if you look at the cycle of recorded history, 28 civilizations, it's like people, have a certain lifespan, arise and pass away. Maybe only the Democrats and the Republicans don't change. (laughs) Pretty much everything else. The death of our parents, the death of friends, Question is what do we do in the face of death what do you believe about death until one or two generations ago for a long time in our culture everyone believed in the christian teachings of heaven and hell but now our religion is primarily science and materialism we've become materialists and we think about things and form and DNA and genetics and evolution as the basis of life. And death then isn't those sort of old rumors of heaven and hells, perhaps. Maybe it's just a return to the soil, a blank, a void. Who knows? But without some greater spiritual vision, we have lots of people die in hospitals hooked up to tubes and beepers and occasionally visited by the rotating nurse on the floor, as if we almost now believe how we die isn't so important. But if you're with someone at that amazing moment, when they die, something else happens, this great mystery. There they were, alive, present, this person. And then what's left? has nothing to do with them whatsoever, it's just not them. Something mysterious happens. Rudbindranath Tagore, again, the Indian poet that Franco quoted from, describes it as the fading of a morning star in the brightness of the dawn. That's what happens to the spirit in his poetry, he says. But something astonishing happens. And this person, they had their personality and their likes and their dislikes and everything that was important to them. You know all that stuff that you have and all their possessions and all their family and so forth. Nothing, gone. You can imagine in your own meditation, if you want to bring it closer to yourself, Imagine your own last breath, which there will be. What will happen when we die? Now, because it's near Halloween, where I like to tell Buddhist ghost stories, I won't be here (laughs) next week. And because Buddhism also teaches, the Buddhist tradition teaches a much bigger picture, realms of... Spirits, heavens, hells, angels, hungry ghosts, whole world cycles, eons. Who knows? It might be true. You'll see. You'll be surprised. (laughs) I'll tell you a story that's not even a Buddhist story, but I put it in tonight. I have a good friend, a very respectable man, a senior professor of medicine and psychiatry at Harvard Medical School who ran the whole Cambridge mental health system for a while, was a researcher into mental illness and developmental psychology and dream research. He was recently called in by the dean of Harvard Medical School after a front page story in the Wall Street Journal described his current research project and was asked by the dean whether this was fitting research for a senior professor at, at the medical school and was reminded that the motto of Harvard is veritas is truth. His name is John Mack, and what he's currently studying is UFO abductions. He's a hypnotist, among other things, as a psychiatrist, and he hypnotized a patient a few years ago, and in this kind of regression out of her came this amazing story of being abducted on this night somewhere in the country in this... UFO. I don't know what I'm talking about, by the way, I'm just telling you this story, so you'll have to do what you do with it. But she told this whole amazing story to him, and it got him thinking, Now was this just a hallucination? And he began to read about it, because there was something very compelling in it, and tried to talk to others, and kind of grappled with it. And, you know, Aviation Week, which is the journal of how many planes are sold and what aircraft companies are doing, what kind of the financial journal of the aviation community this very last year had a whole article that said that there are all these sightings of objects by senior pilots and radar going on recently in this last year in the USA um, that are moving by as yet unknown, non-ordinary propulsion systems. That's all it said, right? (laughs) But anyway, so John Mack was trying to figure this out, and he became connected in his figuring with a network of other researchers who were asking questions and asking around and more stories. And as he did, he began to write about this. and of course, because it's sensational in some way, it was picked up in different magazines. And gradually people started to contact him to tell him their stories. And he is now, traveled around the country and interviewed and hypnotized and worked with dozens, probably some hundreds of people all over Minnesota, Maine, um, New Mexico. And what he says is often there's a lot of amnesia. There's some vague memory of something. But when people go back, they tend to tell almost the same story. And it's people, he said, these are people who've never read this hokey stuff. You know, and I've never talked to anybody else. They'll often tell him he's the first person they've been willing to tell this story to. But oddly enough, the stories are quite similar. They're taken aboard certain kinds of circular ships and they're probed with different instruments and tested with different lights. And there's some kinds of strange skin abrasions that happen to these people that they go to their doctors afterward and don't know where they came from. Sometimes they get the message that these aliens are concerned with the nuclear explosions and things that are happening in our civilization, and so on. He has a lot more details I won't go into. So then he wonders, is this a mass hallucination? Except these people don't talk to one another. It's some old couple that lives in Minnesota who never told a soul. Or is it the collective unconscious, like Carl Jung? Or is it some other level of reality? He went to talk to the Dalai Lama about it. the Dalai Lama. and said, Oh, certainly, in Buddhism we have all kinds of levels of existence, always visits, visits from different levels. Very common. <laughs> Most important, you be compassionate when they arrive. You know? <laughs> the Dalai Lama is just irrepressible, you know. Doesn't matter what kind of being, must treat them kindly, like Buddha. Yes. <laughs> When you are a materialist, whether you're a communist or a capitalist, it doesn't matter, your worldview is really kind of limited. Remember the story I read from the beginning of Sogyal Ripache's book uh, some weeks ago, where his book of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, where he was traveling by horseback with his teacher for three months on the way to Lhasa, and one of the old lamas in the party got very ill and in his tent sat up and began to meditate and died, said, I'm going to die. Lama's wife went and called the great master and took some minutes to come over. And he came back and he looked at this, this other great Lama, who was one of his students. And he said, I'll never forget how he entered the tent and he said, old Lama, he sat down in front of him, don't stay in that state, whatever meditation the man had gone into to die. I could see how he knew just where this teacher had gone. You know, when you do this great practice of death, sometimes subtle obstacles can arise. Come, I'll guide you. And then if I had not seen it, I would never have believed it. But the Lama came back to life. His breath returned, color came back into his body, and they jointly did a death and dying practice called poa for a certain time until it was completed and his eyes closed and said the last few ahs of his breath, And then he passed away. If you're a materialist, your worldview tends to be very limited. Remember the sutra again. Fur on the top of the head, fur on the body, nails, teeth, skin, muscles, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, Liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, bowels, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, urine. Is that what you are? Is that who you are? One recites these at meditation until you can feel the reality, not just as an idea. You do it over and over until you become in touch with your liver and spleen and heart. And you do it as a visualization and after a while they light up in your body and you feel them all as directly as you see another person. And then you sit out in the forest as a monk when they burn bodies and watch the bodies burn all night and sit in the charnel grounds. Or you picture your own death in meditation and contemplate the mystery of death. In order to awaken your heart of compassion, you see people who die in fear, and there's a whole practice in which you offer your body, you imagine that you sit in the funeral grounds and when someone is brought in, you say, no, let me take their death, and you offer your body to feed them. You imagine yourself connecting with the heart of the Buddha that would offer anything for the awakening of others. So there are these meditations to look at. Am I these 32 parts of the body? Is this what I am? A few weeks ago, I spoke on the phone for the last time to a man who sat a number of retreats, a beautiful man named Philip who had gone from age 33 or 34 to age 70 or 80 in the course of the last six months of dying of AIDS, of the epidemic. And he was a sweet and humorous and generous man with a, with a beautiful heart, and a great spirit. And when I spoke to him, he was in the hospital in Los Angeles, sick. He had kidney failure and liver failure. And I talked to him on the phone and I chanted the Buddhist refuges, buddhamsaranangachami, damang saranangachami, sankhang saranangachami. And his body was bloated, he went from 130 pounds to over 200 pounds, um, all filled with water because his kidneys weren't working, his liver had stopped working and he had various infections in his body, and he was filled with certain parasites. And in a lot of pain, he couldn't talk very well. It was his last day or so. And I talked to him, I said, Philip, your body is rotting underneath you. And he could kind of say, yeah. He could just hear his words a little bit. I said, remember, you are not this body. This is not who you are. It's time to let go, Philip. Let yourself rest in your heart. Let yourself rest in that great spirit. Be at peace with yourself. It's okay to let go. It's okay to let go. This isn't who you are. And then we would breathe together and chant again for a while. Philip died the next day. He died in a very peaceful way. The great koan, the great question posed in Zen practice and in much of spiritual practice is, who is dragging this body around? That's the question. Or it's put in another way. What is your original face before you were born? What is your true nature? Who is it when, like Philip, when your body is decaying, who is that happened to? Who are we? Now, remember, it was either last week or the week before, I told you I'd begun collecting some stories in a project that may be a new book. And the book is really going to be about grace, the grace that brings people into spiritual practice. So I told that story of Lama Govinda a couple of weeks ago and the Tibetan, this pilgrim who left the book that became his life work out of the blue. Well, another story in this book uh, was told to me by Pir Vilayat Khan, who's a wonderful master in the Sufi tradition in his 70s. His father, who was a great guru, uh, a Sufi master, also Hazrat Anayat Khan, died many years ago when Pir was only 10 years old, 65 years ago. And he called his son to him, and he said, When you are older, my boy, I want you to go to India, and find the source of the Ganges and the Jamnu River. And there you will find some teachings to really begin your spiritual practice. So, some years later, when he became, when he was 18, Vilayat left India and he was pretty poor, so he traveled overland, and finally made his way through uh, what's now Pakistan, Afghanistan and whatever, into India and went to the Ganges River in Hardwar and looked at this map and said, well, I guess I should try to go to the source of the Ganges. And he began a walk up the Ganges River, first to Rishikesh, this wonderful town where the waters of the Ganges pour out of the Himalayas. And There was a great yogi, a 108-year-old yogi, sitting in this stone cave that was big enough for him to sit in but not enough to lie down, who was there meditating pretty much day and night. and. People would just come and leave flowers and things at his feet. He said, I guess I'm going the right direction. Traveled up from Rishikesh. There's this wonderful pilgrimage route and you have to walk for days and days. And it's not like you take, you know, drive up, take this highway or something, going to Lake Tahoe. This is still walk up to Badranath and Gangotri, thousands of feet up in the Himalayas. And there were pilgrims and he continued to walk. And on his walk, he met the Maharaja of Talaguar. Out of the mountains, and there's these wonderful temples, and it's filled with sadhus and yogis. And there was this island in the middle of the icy Ganges River, with which had... A, Fifty or eighty yogis and matted-haired ascetics, all sitting in circles meditating on this island. He went. They got all the way up to Gangotri, which is where there's some glaciers and the Ganges pours out of the mountains. And there's these wonderful temples, and it's filled with sadhus and yogis. And there was this island in the middle of the icy Ganges river, with which had. A, 50 or 80 yogis and matted haired ascetics all sitting in circles meditating on this island. He went to sit with them and chant with them for a while. Um, But then he said, the police came and they arrested him. What was a Muslim doing, English English educated up there? Um, And it was a time there was tension between India and China and they thought he was a spy. Fortunately, the Maharaja he'd walked up with, got him out of prison. And so he went up and he said, I found, I was looking around and finally I found this Rishi, this sage in a cave, um, who seemed even more advanced than the one sitting by the hot spring in the water stream. And he said, what is your purpose in coming to India? And I told him what my father said. But I couldn't understand it. How could the source of the Ganges River and the source of the Jamnu, which are two great rivers, how could they be the same source? They'd be the same river. And he meditated this Rishi for a while, and then he said, ah, that is a secret tradition. It appears the sources come out of different locations. That's because their original source is much higher in the mountains. But that is the place where only the very greatest Rishis and yogis are found. This is a secret. There's a glacier high in the mountains between these two rivers, and the water pours out of the same glacier. So I decided that I had to go there. I headed up to the great glacier between Gangotri and Jamnotri, traveled as far as I could when there wasn't too much snow, sleeping in caves, getting soaking wet, shivering, walked in the snow far from any human inhabitants. Finally, I found these huge footmarks. I thought it was a bear, but they were too big. I was afraid. I thought, well, I've come all this way. My father said to do it. I'm going to do it. And I followed them for many hours. And finally, late in the in the day, this last day, I came to a cave and there was a fantastic Rishi sitting like a king in a, in its in the mouth of this cave. He made a sign to me which I thought meant he's, I'm not supposed to come in. I didn't know whether he was greeting me or not. So I sat in the snow, cross-legged, 18 years old, closed my eyes, not knowing what to do, and after some time opened my eyes and he was smiling. And immediately he spoke to me in English. I don't know why he knew I spoke English. He said, why have you come so far to see what you should be? And I answered, well, it's wonderful to see myself in you. And then he stated, but you already have a guru. I answered, yes, my guru is my father. I'm not looking for a guru. He said, well, if you're not looking for a guru, then come in. (laughs) Shortly he sent me, he said, you should go right back to the clinic. You're in bad state and you need to get cured. And it's true, from all the snow and rain, I had pneumonia and I went back but instead the police locked him in jail. And I had to climb, they took me then to the hospital and put a guard in my room. I had to climb out of the hospital window when I was a little bit better to go up and see this guy. Finally, I got up to see him again. And he said, there's another cave nearby. You go sit in that cave and look into your heart with with your mind and radiate the heart filled with the light of your mind until you can illumine your whole body that's all he said, and I I would go and sit there for a day, and then go and just at dawn the next day, he would he said, come back, and I would just sit with him. And he'd say, no, no, you're doing it wrong without any words. I don't mean the physical light. I mean the light of your true nature. Go back in your cave. That's... <laughs> and so I went back and forth. I had no food with me, but it didn't seem to matter, and I wanted to ask him questions, but he didn't seem to care about any questions I had to ask. He wasn't the kind of person you could chat with. He seemed totally illuminated, just gone in some samadhi state. And finally, when he spoke, he would say amazing things like, the time has come when there will not be rishis living in the world anymore as I do in caves. It's now the time for illuminated beings to go amongst the people of the world. The time of the rishis in caves is over. As a matter of fact, he said, I don't know what our civilization down there is doing, but we can't live on breath alone as we used to in these mountains. (laughs) We were well up over 14,000 feet. Then he said, now there's danger of war. War is in the minds and hearts of people, so that's where you must work. There's no use fighting in the war. You have to change the hearts of people. Take the light that you found here, return down, and then really begin your practice. So that's the story of how his practice began. What is that light, or what enables people to live on prana or air? What is your true nature? A Dharma teacher friend of mine sat with a young man who was dying a few months ago, a student, and this person died with a great deal of fear. And when the person died, this teacher then, Spent some time sitting with his body. On the day after he died, he was sitting with this man's body, and he said, The head of this man, of this corpse, turned toward me. The eyes opened, and I saw this expression of great fear, terror on his face. And I looked at him, and I said, It's okay. It's fine. You needn't be afraid. You can let go. It's just fine. He said, and the head turned back and the eyes closed and the body just rested there. Then he looked at me and he said, Now I know that that doesn't happen to corpses, but I saw it as clearly as I see you here. And maybe it wasn't his body that did it. Maybe it was something else. But he was there in a way that was so clear, so very true, and he needed something. And the whole energy in the room changed, he said, after that moment. What is your true nature? Who is carrying this body around? Can you rest in your true nature? Remember the story I tell of my wife when we were in India, of her recognizing the day that her brother died halfway around the world, having the vision on the very day that her brother died. Well, when we went back to be with her parents in Florida, a few years later she told her mother this story that when I was in India, I saw this vision of my brother and it was the week before the telegram came. I knew I saw how he died. And her mother, who was this very plain-spoken Methodist retiree in in a kind of retirement park in Florida, said, well, after your brother died, Um, the day after he came to visit and he sat in that chair over there and he came for three months, every evening for an hour or two, he would sit in our living room while we would watch TV or talk and he just sat there and looked at us as if there was something he needed to understand. And then after three months, I could feel it seemed like he was getting more and more peaceful and then he went away. And that's the last I've seen of him. Halloween's coming, remember? (laughs) In Buddhist tradition, it's said that the moment of death is a great opportunity to remember who we are, to untangle our karma, to return to our true nature. But we need to be prepared for that. And that's part of what we learn in meditation, to face the mystery of our life, to sit, and as my teacher Ajahn Chah said, to take the one seat and allow all the parts of our life to show themselves, to rest in that centeredness of our being, so that when we die we have that, and so that our life is lived fully, so that we do love well, so that our business is not all unfinished, waiting to the last moment. It's said when you die that the four elements, one sinks into another. and First, the earth element, your body, which is hardness and softness, your body starts to crumble under you instead of being hard. Um, and sometimes it feels like there's great weights on you and you can't breathe. And then the water element, water fluid starts to seep out of your nose and mouth. You become incontinent, and sometimes it feels like great tidal waves sweep, sweep over you. And then the the fire element, the element of temperature, you get cold and the last place that's warm is your heart and all your limbs get cold. Or sometimes you feel like you're burning up in this great fire. And then the air element, these great winds sweep through your body and you become less and less connected to this human body and more and more moving into the realm of consciousness without a body. This is like Philip again where his body turned into water underneath him, and then air. Now, the mystery of our death and our identity does not need to wait to the moment of dying. It is always here with us each day. Every time we go to sleep and wake up, which is a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? Every moment we are born and we die. And we move in that, in this stream of grace. Something moves in us that is much greater than this body. If we're not this body, if we're not these things we've collected, then what are we? And how can we find the universal freedom and the great compassionate heart of the Buddha? The practice of mindfulness, this sutra I've been reading, of awareness. is purpose is to see our entanglement and the suffering it causes, entanglement in greed and fear and prejudice in a small sense of self, and to discover freedom. Mindfulness of our body and death releases attachments. It releases fear. It allows us to offer the forgiveness that we've withheld for too long. Our greed, our confusion drops away in the mirror of death. And as Ramdas's friend Emmanuel the channel being says, he believes that death is perfectly safe. Mm-hmm. But it's a good reminder. My wife, Liana, makes a practice that whenever I go out of the house, or Caroline leaves our daughter, or whenever she leaves other people, to really say goodbye to them. She says, I somehow know in my being that sometime I'll say goodbye and it will be the last time. And so I want each time that my daughter goes to school, each time you go off to work, each time that we take a leave, that I really look at you and I really say goodbye to you in a way that honors you, that respects the tentativeness of this life. To practice meditation, to look into this very deep question, who am I, what is this, helps us to discover the great heart of the Buddha, to rest in this place that is timeless and deathless, and to bring that kind of respect and completeness and compassion to every moment. So I end with a poem from Kabir. I talk to my inner lover and I say, why such a rush today? Slow down. We sense that there's some sort of spirit that loves birds and animals and the ants, perhaps the same one that gave a radiance to you in your mother's womb. Is it logical you would be walking around entirely orphaned now? The truth is you turned away yourself and decided to go into the dark alone. And now you're tangled up in others and have forgotten the truth that you once knew. Kabir says this. Just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. So let's sit for a minute. Fur in the head, fur on the body, nails, teeth, skin, muscles, sinews, bones, bone marrow, <coughs> kidneys, heart, liver. It's said that one can be enlightened just hearing this list. Diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestine, bowels, excrement bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, pus, urine. Who is carrying this body? What is your true nature? And what do you wish to do with this gift of life that you've been given for such a short time? What really matters? an interesting time we're going into in this season, uh, it will be daylight savings time changing in next uh, this next weekend, I believe, and so then it gets dark really early and we start heading toward winter solstice and Halloween and all the other kind of energies of this time of the year, um, plus the elections and so forth. Um, it's a good time to stay in touch with yourself when all these outer changes are happening. So I commend to you to sit during the week sometimes or to take walks in nature or or do what you can to keep that sense of, of your true nature, of your Buddha nature, that great heart of a Buddha that is really what matters in your life, to stay connected with that. So let's chant just for a moment the simple sound of letting go, opening that we work with ah together. Ah.